You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Don't believe the lie that there is work-life balance. It's a lie, and it's a lie that we sell to women, and it's a lie that women tell themselves because they see aspirationally other people who seem to be able to do it, and then they take that burden on themselves and criticize themselves that they can't do it. And so my best advice is don't believe the lie. Do the best that you can and make those choices. Investing in the market is about more than just money. It's about investing in your future and your choices. It's investing in you. If you're looking to optimize your investment strategy, visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today. Hi, everybody. Hello to my Her Money family. I'm Jean Chatsky, and we are so happy that you're here with us today for a very special Mother's Day episode of the Her Money podcast. These last few years have been difficult for every woman, but no one has juggled or struggled quite as much as the moms, because we are the caregivers, the dinner preppers, the skin knee doctorers, and the schedule coordinators. And if we work outside the home, we have two full-time jobs, only one of which we actually get paid for. In honor of this week, we wanted to do a special episode with an amazing mother who has been right there with us through all of this, making it work as best as she could with her young children and her vibrant career during the pandemic. And I gotta say, we found the perfect woman, a woman who understands sacrifice on a deeper and more profound level than any woman I have ever met. She honestly needs no introduction, but I'm going to give you one anyway, because I don't want you to miss learning about one single thing when it comes to her incredible accomplishments. Senator Tammy Duckworth is an Iraqi war veteran. She's a Purple Heart recipient. She's a former Assistant Secretary of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, who was among the first handful of Army women to fly combat missions during Operation Iraqi Freedom. She served in the reserve forces for 23 years before retiring at the rank of Lieutenant Colonel in 2014, And then in 2016, she was elected to the U.S. Senate representing Illinois' 8th Congressional District. In 2018, you probably heard about this, she became the first senator to give birth while serving in office. And she sent a message to working families across the country when she fought for and then secured an historic rule change that allowed senators to bring their infant children onto the Senate floor for breastfeeding. She is fluent in Thai and Indonesian. She attended the University of Hawaii. She earned her master's degree in international affairs from George Washington University just Wow. Senator Duckworth, welcome. Happy Mother's Day. We are so thrilled to have you with us. It's good to be on. Thanks for having me. Of course. And I gave our listeners a brief introduction to your many, many, many accomplishments, but I would just love for them to hear it from you. You have spent your entire career serving others as a member of the military, now as a member of the Senate. Can you tell us why you chose these paths? Well, I have always known that I wanted to serve my country in some way. 
I just didn't know I was going to do it in the military or, or in politics. I actually thought I was going to join the Foreign Service. My childhood dream growing up in Southeast Asia, where I followed my dad who worked for the United Nations refugee programs, was to join the Foreign Service. I wanted to grow up to be an ambassador someday. And my dad, who came from a very long line of um, military service, going back on my dad's side to before the revolution even, always taught us kids that you have to serve, that you're so lucky to have been born American and you need to give something back. And I thought I was going to do it in the Foreign Service. And I sort of stumbled into my military career. <laughs> There's always your next act, right? If you want to be an ambassador, I'm sure that that could be arranged. You and your husband, Brian, you're the proud parents of two daughters, Abigail and Miley. Can you tell us what your journey into motherhood has been like and how your daughters have influenced your work? Well, it's been tough. It's been tough just getting pregnant. I, like a lot of young women, especially those in the military, put off having children while I was in my most fertile years, you know, reproductively fertile years, because I wanted to become a battalion commander. And I knew what that path was. It meant I had to be a platoon leader, then I had to be a company commander, then I had to be an operations officer, and then an executive officer, and then company command. And I was on that track. And so I kept putting off having children, my husband and I did, because he was doing the same thing with his military career. And then by the time we decided, you know, maybe we should think about having kids, I was 34, 35. I just finished my command time. So I thought, okay, this is great. I have about a two-year period before my next big job getting me ready to be a battalion commander. So let's think about getting pregnant then. Well, Iraq happened and I get deployed. So we had the conversation while I was 35. Well, how about when I get back from deployment? We'll talk about it. I get deployed, then I get wounded. I come back and I spent 13 months recovering. And by this point, when everything settles down and you sort of come up for air, I was 40 years old, 42 years old. And suddenly my fertile years were behind me. And it's funny, I had a conversation with my gynecologist, my women's health doctor and said, we'd like to try to get pregnant. She says, well, you're 42 now. You would be considered a geriatric pregnancy. <laughs> what a terrible term. Yes, awful. Uh, <laughs> Awful. <laughs> and she said, you know, but this is what we professional women do. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, we give up our fertility in exchange for our careers because that's the choice we're forced to make. And then it took me until I was 46 to finally have my first daughter, which many, many, many rounds of IVF. And then I had my second one two weeks after I turned 50, after many more rounds of IVF and a miscarriage. So they are a lesson in patience and persistence. They are a joy in my life every single day. And they reinvigorate me and renew my interest and open up new areas that I never thought I would get involved in, in terms of policy. So I've gotten a lot, very much involved in a lot of policy that have to do with women and children's health, which I never really was into because I was all about the military and national security issues before. It's amazing how becoming a mom can absolutely change your life. And after listening to parts of your story that I hadn't heard, I'm not surprised that you have been an advocate the way you have for working families in the Senate. I mean, there was first there was the rule change that allowed senators to bring their infants onto the Senate floor to facilitate breastfeeding. There's also the FAM Act, friendly airports for mothers, which ensure that new moms have access to lactation rooms when traveling. Can you tell us a little bit more about these efforts and why these particular ones, why they've been so important to you? Well, I think they're a good example of representation matters, that when you have a seat at the table, 
you're no longer on the menu. <laughs> Speaker Pelosi uh, used to say, if you don't have a seat at the table, then you're on the menu. And she mm -hmm. was, when she was Speaker the first time, the person who changed the rules in the House to allow children onto the floor of the House so that her members could actually do their jobs. And if that meant bring an infant onto the floor while you're doing your job because you're breastfeeding, then you should be able to do that. When I became a senator and I became pregnant and I realized that, hey, I have to be able to vote and I can't get on the floor to vote unless I bring my child onto the floor with me. And oh, by the way, these arcane rules say that I can't bring a child onto the floor so then I can't do my job. That's when I realized that I have nine months to change the rules. And it was a long involved process of fighting. Thank goodness I had Senator Amy Klobuchar on my side. And I had very many unexpected allies along the way and some really ridiculous opposition along the way. I had to answer questions like, what will the baby's dress code be? There's a dress code in the Senate. You have to wear a blazer, you have to wear shoes and socks, and you can't wear a hat. And I remember thinking, are you seriously asking me what a newborn is going to wear? So when I did bring my daughter on the floor, I did throw a blazer on her that day. <laughs> Just, Just to spite A little them. yellow blazer. Exactly. Just to spite them. And she kept her beanie on because, you know, all, all babies have that little beanie. And then the FAM Act, the Friendly Airport for Mothers Act, came out as a result of me traveling back and forth between Illinois and Washington, D.C. And I was trying to breastfeed my daughter and I was trying to express breast milk. And there were many, many times when I tried to express breast milk and there's no place for me to do it that was private. And I was told either use the handicapped stall of the public toilet, which is disgusting. You would make a sandwich in there for yourself to eat. Why would you think that I would prepare food for my daughter, you know, breast milk for my daughter there? Or I was literally told by an airport official, well, you could just go plug your breast pump in next to where those guys are charging their cell phones. Oh my God. And I thought, oh, you don't know who you're talking to. We're going to come up with a law. And it took me a few years, but we made it happen. So now there are safe, clean, secure, lockable lactation rooms that are not bathrooms available at all of the airports in our nation. Yeah, I've seen them. I started traveling again for work in the past month or so, and I'm long past my breastfeeding years, but I would have been grateful for them during those years. This pandemic has been so tough on women. 1.1 million women have not come back to work, in part due to responsibilities at home, in part also due to the gender pay gap. And if one person is going to be home to deal with all the responsibilities, it's going to be the person who earns less money. So Let's talk about some of the important issues facing women right now. What are your thoughts about how we can move forward with paid family leave, with the caregiver's credit, with the other benefits for working mothers that seem to have gotten kind of stuck recently? They have, and we're fighting to get them included in um, the next package just moving forward. So paid family leave, absolutely. We're the only developed nation in the world that does not have universal paid family leave. And that's crazy. We force workers to choose between a paycheck to keep a roof over their heads or taking care of an ill loved one or a newborn. That is absolutely inhumane and we can do better as a nation. So we need universal paid family leave. And there are ways to do it without it being something that is a burden on the taxpayers. Senator Gillibrand has a great bill that I'm co-sponsoring that actually 
creates an insurance program where uh, you as the worker would pay about a buck fifty a week. Your employer would pay a buck fifty a week into this program. So together, three dollars a week, you know, and over the course of the year, that's under uh, two hundred dollars. When you need paid family leave, you could take paid time off because you paid into this insurance program. And if you wanted up to a certain percentage of your salary, if you wanted more of your salary, say 80% of your salary, then you would pay maybe a $2 a week. You know, that would cost you a little over $100 a year. And you could actually have paid family leave. So there are ways to do this without it just being, you know, a taxpayer funded system. We also have to bring on more childcare. We lost so much childcare capacity in this country during COVID. So many facilities went out of business that even if we had universal child tax credit where we have, you know, child care for everyone, we couldn't provide it because we just don't have enough child care providers. So we have to provide the tax credits. No working family should be paying more than 7% of their salary towards child care. And I'm okay with negotiating where if you're above, you know, if you make more than $400,000 a year, then you don't get any tax credit. But if you make less than that, you can income adjust it but it shouldn't be more than 7% of your salary. But we also have to make sure that we get more childcare capacity into the system. So if you want to get childcare, you can actually find it. Because right now, uh, you probably can't find the childcare that you need. Yeah, no, I've got a number of young women in my orbit, and I know that they have really been struggling with that. I wanted to touch just briefly on the initiative that you have going right now. You've introduced legislation that would help prevent the oil industry from engaging in gas price gouging. It's something that a lot of us are feeling right now when we fill up our cars. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, so the oil companies would like you to believe that the reason the gas prices are so high is purely because of the war in Ukraine because of the reduction in oil from Russia. Well, we only get a, we get less than 5% of the oil uh, here in the United States that's consumed. It actually is produced in Russia. But it's really interesting how as soon as the price per barrel of oil goes up internationally, you see the price per gallon at the gas station jump almost immediately. And yet when OPEC says, hey, we're gonna pump more oil and the price per barrel goes down, you don't see that price at the gas station drop, not for a while. And it certainly doesn't drop as much as it went up. And so what is happening? Well, what's happening is a lot of these oil companies are choosing to use this opportunity to make profits, excessive profits, and in some cases to the extent of price gouging. In fact, right now the oil companies have over 3,000 leases of public land where they have begun pumping oil and have all the permits and everything necessary and have even begun pumping and they've stopped pumping oil because they're keeping the prices artificially high. And they've even said out loud that they would rather keep the production low and take advantage of the higher oil prices to use that money to pay more dividends to their stockholders or to buy back stock. And they've started buying back stock. So my bill would go after excessive profits, would also go after price gouging, not just by oil companies, but also those local companies, some of those gas stations. Not all of them do it. Many of their local gas stations are mom and pop businesses, but there are quite a few that uh, do price gouge and we have to go after those bad actors and make it illegal. Is there any sort of a prediction on your part for how quickly we might see this bill move through the channels? Because we clearly need it now. Yes. So I am hoping that we come up for review here within the next couple of weeks with the idea of it becoming law before the end of the year and hopefully by the summertime. And if that's the case, it goes into effect as soon as the president signs it into law. And then states will be able to bring action against these companies that price gouge for um, oil. 
Amazing. So, Senator, this is our Mother's Day special. And as we wrap here, I just wanted to ask, what's your best advice for other working mothers? I mean, clearly you have a crazy schedule, so I'm not even going to ask how you do it all. I'm going to ask how you make the choices that you make. I'm so glad you put it like that. My advice is don't believe the lie that there is work-life balance. There is no work-life balance. I actually wrote a book recently as a result of my daughters. It was a, a love letter to my daughters, and it ended up being a book. But in the book, I talk about having a breakdown during a campaign where I was trying to breastfeed my daughter and, and be with my daughter. At the time, I only had the one, and also be a good candidate and be a good congresswoman, and I just couldn't do it. And one of my staff members and a friend sat me down and said, Tammy, it's a lie. There is no such thing. You cannot be the perfect candidate and the perfect congresswoman and the perfect mom all at once. It's a lie and it's a lie that we sell to women. And it's a lie that women tell themselves because they see aspirationally other people who seem to be able to do it. And then they take that burden on themselves and criticize themselves that they can't do it. And so my best advice is don't believe the lie. Do the best that you can and make those choices. For me, it's having to draw a red line where I tell everybody around me, I don't take a meeting before 9 a.m. Because I put my girls on the school bus at eight and it's important to me. Personally, I want to make their school lunches and I don't want to put them on the school bus. I'm not there to, when they get off the school bus, but I'm gonna be there to put them on the school bus. That's important to me and that for me is, you know, but I have a job where I can do that. But there have been plenty of times when those girls went to bed wearing leggings and a sweatshirt, and that's what they got on the school bus with, because I knew the next morning we weren't going to have time to get them dressed. So, you know, I got them dressed the night before, and that's what they went to school in, and I considered a win, and lunch was a lunchable, and I considered that a win. So go easy on yourself. We're all just trying to cobble something together and do the best that we can. And sometimes it is just us moms. It seems like you're on your own and you're doing it, but know that even if you're on your own and doing it, there are other moms just like you on their own doing it together. You know, we're all going through it, but don't believe the lie. Do the best that you can and be kind to yourself. I thought I was the only one who got my kids dressed the night before, so I feel so much better now. Senator Tammy Duckworth, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Happy Mother's Day to you and your family, and thank you so much for your service. Same to you as well. Thank you. And as we head into our mailbag, boy, oh boy, I'm thinking about Tammy Duckworth, and she just exudes confidence. And I'm sure all of you know that when it comes to investing, confidence is one of the keys. It's confidence in your ability, your knowledge, your strategy. If you're ready to do more with your investments, visit edelmanfinancialengines.com slash hermoney. You'll be able to schedule a free appointment with an advisor. This is important because you can review your current situation and you can get tailored strategies specific to you to help build and grow and protect and preserve your wealth. Get started at planefe.com slash hermoney. Do more for your future right now by speaking with an advisor today. And Catherine Tuggle joins me as she always does for our mailbag. Hey, Catherine, I really enjoyed that, as you can tell. Oh my gosh, she was great. I have watched her speeches for so long. I've followed her career uh, and she's such an inspiration. I'm so glad that she could be here today. I am too. And what a way to tip our hats to all the moms out there, huh? I mean, she's just made such a big difference. And by the way, a happy Mother's Day to my own mother, Elaine, and to your mother. Aw, my mom, Joellen. Happy Mother's Day. 
Exactly. I didn't really understand, you know, how big a deal Mother's Day was until I was a mother. And then I was like, yes, of course we are going to celebrate this day. (laughs) Yes. Of course you are going to get me a present or at least a card. Well, especially after the last couple of years that we've had when moms have been saddled with so much heaviness and endless to-do lists, you know, it's it's all the more important that we take a moment. For sure. For sure. And I will always remember and cherish my kids used to make a tornado of breakfast in bed for me on Mother's Day when they were young enough to still be living at home. And, you know, it was always some sort of magical concoction, a new way to make French toast or a new way to make eggs or pancakes. And there was always a secret ingredient, vanilla or cinnamon or something like that. But it was so nice and wonderful. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, big mess in the kitchen. But by the time they got to high school, they were also cleaning it up. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, exactly. Let's take some questions. Our first question today comes to us from Roz. She writes, Hi, Jean. I've been listening to your show since the beginning and look forward to the new episodes every week. I have a question about I-bonds. My husband and I recently purchased one. Are we also allowed to purchase one more every year in the name of our revocable family trust? Thank you. What a smart question. And thank you, first of all, for listening to the show for so long. We love our loyal listeners, and it's always nice to hear from you guys. But yeah, this is a really smart question because the big frustration for people with I-bonds is the $10,000 limit. Each individual person can only buy up to $10,000 worth each year in their own name. It means if you and your spouse also want to buy them, you could buy $20,000 worth. This one sort of hitch to get around that is that if you're expecting a tax refund, you can buy an additional $5,000 by using your tax refund directly to do that. You'll actually from what I understand, get paper I-bonds in that instance, but it is one workaround. This is another workaround. A revocable trust or revocable trust, I'm never quite sure how to say it, is also called a living trust. And it's an instrument that people use with their wills in order to make passing along their assets at death easier. It's a way to avoid probate. It's a way to make sure that your privacy is maintained, if that's something that you're concerned about. And yeah, if you have a trust, you can buy another $10,000 per year in the name of that trust. Now, you have to open a specific trust account with Treasury Direct, which is the only place where you can buy I-bonds, but they have instructions for opening what they call an entity account. It includes not just trust accounts, but corporations, LLCs, partnerships, and you can buy I-bonds there. So great question. And yeah, go ahead and go forward. Thank you, Jean. Our next question today comes to us from Heather. She writes, Dear Jean and Catherine, love your podcast, and I'm so thankful for all you've taught me. I wanted to ask about mutual funds and taxes. I have a mutual fund that was started with $5,000 and I've never contributed more to it. It's grown for well over 20 years. If I were to take some money out of it, how would that be taxed? I received 1099 DIV for it every year and reported the capital gains on my taxes. I've seen warnings not to pay taxes twice on mutual funds, but I don't know how to figure that out. Thank you for all you do to help listeners. I love tuning in each week. 
Well, thank you so much for writing, Heather, and for the compliments. And I've seen these stories too, right? There are a lot of stories that are written to grab eyeballs and a headline like, don't pay taxes twice on your mutual funds is going to make you click because it's going to make you worry. But in fact, you're not really being taxed twice. When a mutual fund takes a gain within its portfolio, when it sells shares of a company at a profit or of an investment at a profit, replaces it with something else, that's a gain in the mutual fund. It's a capital gain in the fund, and you are paying and have been paying capital gains taxes on that. The other tax that you have to pay is a tax on what you've made from these mutual funds. It's not double dipping from Uncle Sam. It's that when you liquidate your shares of this mutual fund, when you sell, you're going to be taxed on any gain over the purchase price that you paid for each share of the fund. Now, the good news is you've held these shares a long time. It's going to be a long-term capital gains rate, but you do have to pay these taxes. Now, for you, because you bought in with $5,000 and you've never contributed more to it, this is going to be relatively simple. Your gain is going to be relatively easy to figure out because you bought all of your shares at the same price a very long time ago. And I hope you've made some really good money by buying and holding for such a long time. For other people, You just want to make sure that you keep really good records of when you buy these shares so that you can recognize the specific gains on the specific shares when you sell. Your brokerage firm will help you with this, but it can get complicated. So just make sure that it's something that is on your radar. And Catherine, I know we've got another question, but before we do that, let me just mention Her Money is also supported by BCU, and BCU is one of the nation's fastest growing credit unions. BCU helps members make really smart financial decisions by offering the products and services and caring support they need for whatever stage of life they're in. A lot of people ask me, how do I join a credit union? How do I find out if I can become a member of BCU? The easiest way to find out if you're eligible is by visiting www.bcu.org. And we've got one more? Yes, we do. Our next question comes to us from Siobhan. She writes, First off, I want to say thank you for helping women gain more knowledge and control over their financial futures. As a young Black woman from a low-income family, I had no guidance on investing, and your work has helped me take initiative to increase my income and advance my investing journey. Since I started listening to your podcast last year, I switched jobs, negotiated my salary, and got a promotion to go from making $55,000 to $81,000 this year. Here's my question. Whoa. Just wait, before we even get to her question, like, that's amazing, Siobhan. We are sending you some Her Money swag. Yes. Um, just to celebrate, we are going to send you some Her Money swag because, boy, you've done such a great job. So congratulations. Absolutely. Huge congrats. She writes, here's my question. I'm 26 years old, dating with no kids. I have a traditional IRA with about 15000 a Roth IRA with 3500 and an emergency savings account with 6000 
My goal is to start maxing out my Roth IRA every year and contribute to my Roth 401k with a 5% employer match. I know that eventually my portfolio needs to be diversified and that I should have some bonds, but I'm lost on how to make this happen. Right now, I'm basically 100% invested in stocks, ETFs. At what age do I need to start adding bonds to my portfolio? At my age, what percentage of my portfolio should be in bonds? Do you have any recommendations for bond ETFs to consider or books or other resources that might help? I'm scared to purchase individual bonds. My dream goal is to increase my income and invest enough money to become work optional in 20 to 25 years. I know eventually I'll need to sit down with the financial planner, but I don't feel like I have enough disposable income to afford one just yet since I'm in a high cost of living area. Thanks in advance for your insight. Siobhan, again, thank you so much for writing and wow, you are doing so well. This is a really good question because when we talk about asset allocation, we're talking about the mix of stocks and bonds and cash that we carry in our portfolio from the time that we start investing, preferably in our 20s like you have done until the rest of our life. And the mix starts out more aggressive because we've got time to weather the ups and downs in the market. And because stocks have historically been the best performing category of assets, we look to put the most of our money in stocks when we're younger and they have time to ride out those ups and downs. But we balance that with bonds because when stocks do poorly, bonds tend to do a little better. When bonds do poorly, stocks tend to do a little better. Doesn't always work like that. The beginning of this year, both stocks and bonds got kind of clobbered. But, you know, in general, that's what we're looking to do, to maintain a mix that works for our age and for our risk tolerance. And I would say the time to add some bonds is now, but I wouldn't add too much. I'd probably put anywhere from 10 to 15-ish percent of your portfolio into bonds, looking to get to 20% by the time you're 30. And ETFs are a terrific way to do it. You can do it with a total bond market ETF. Fidelity has a great one. It's a total bond ETF. But by the way, most mutual fund companies have total bond market ETFs at this point. You may want to look at rounding that out with tips ETF. iShares Tips Bond ETF is from BlackRock, and it is considered a pretty good play this year, especially if inflation maintains the run that it has been on. Another way to do this, by the way, is to look at a target date fund. A target date fund is going to be a mix of stock funds and bond funds that is managed with your age and your likely retirement date in mind. So if you don't want to pick bond ETFs or bond funds, then a way to get the asset allocation that you need is by putting everything into a target date fund. But I'd start probably just with that total bond market fund. 
if you want to add a little of the inflation protected one, great. But otherwise, you know, put the 10% in the total bond ETF or the 15% in the total bond ETF. The expenses are very low. It will cover all of your bases and you can go from there. And thanks so much for the great question. Thank you so much, Jean. Great advice as always. Oh, thanks, Catherine. And in today's Thrive, can we just talk for a second about student loan scams? If you've been getting emails, phone messages, or texts about how to qualify for student loan forgiveness, which has admittedly been in the news, you have likely been the target of a scam. These scams have picked up steam during the Department of Education's COVID relief pause on student loan interest and payments. And some of them really make you wonder if you could be missing out on a legitimate chance to save some big money, but just watch out. Anyone doing outreach to you about your loans is not legitimate. At hermoney.com, we break down what to watch for and how to protect yourself, but let me just offer you a few tips here. First, the Department of Education is never going to hound you about forgiveness programs. It's up to the borrower to reach out to the loan servicer to inquire about forgiveness. It is only available to a select set of borrowers who meet very strict eligibility criteria. It's not all that easy to qualify for, but just know that nobody, nobody is going to be reaching out to you with an enticing offer. Second, Keep an ear out for some of the most common scam language. And this is not just true of student loan scams. This is true of all scams, asking you to act immediately, telling you that your loan has been flagged for forgiveness. Anything that sounds too good to be true is too good to be true. So just hang up the phone and take steps to protect your personal private information and data. For starters, update your FSA ID at studentaid.gov. Update your account with a new secure password. Make sure your account information is correct. Also, those of you who listen to this show, you know I am a big fan of freezing your credit. You do that with the three credit bureaus, Equifax, Experian, TransUnion. We have a very helpful step-by-step on how to freeze your credit at hermoney.com. And lastly, file a complaint. Whether you have given out sensitive information or not, studentaid.gov would like to know that you've just been targeted. So you can submit a claim to describe that scam and report that scam to the FTC at reportfraud.ftc.gov as well as the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Senator Tammy Duckworth for joining us. Happy Mother's Day to her and happy Mother's Day to all of you and your mothers out there. If you like what you hear, I hope that you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll talk soon.